Good afternoon, this is your captain speaking with just a little flight information. We're flying at an altitude of 37,000 feet and our airspeed is 400 miles an hour. A couple little facts here, I'm packing a Colt King Cobra, that's a 357 caliber firearm with a black rubber grip and a six inch barrel, capable of piercing body armor at a distance of up to 27 feet. And I can put a hole in human bone and flesh the size of the Grand Canyon, which, by the way, is coming up on the left-hand side of the plane. So just sit back and relax and enjoy the rest of the plane. No, not you, not you. Your organization's terrible. Should I tell you? Should I tell you? Oh, you Boy Scouts, but you know life, you know life. Hey everyone, it's Sam Carliner and this is another episode of News Dive. This week we're once again looking at some international news that is very important, uh, where a lot of people are getting harmed, but unfortunately it is not getting as much coverage as it should. I am talking about the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Now, this has been going on for a few weeks. It started uh, towards the end of September. At the time, I read up on it, and it was pretty easy to follow, and has since just exploded into a very complicated, very concerning event in which Armenian people are being attacked by some very powerful countries. And so... I'm really happy I was able to cover this because I think people should definitely be paying a lot more attention, sharing what's going on. I spoke with Rafi Berberian, an Armenian rights activist, uh, Armenian-American, and he explained a lot of why this is such a concern for Armenian people in the U.S., why more people should be paying attention to it, and fortunately went into a lot of the history and a lot of the recent events in the conflict that I might not have been able to tell you about myself. If you like this coverage, I really encourage you to follow Newsdive regularly. We are trying to do a lot more international news covering stories that often don't really get heard. You can subscribe to Newsdive on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcasting platform you like to use. And you can follow us on social media on Twitter and Instagram. We are at Newsdive Radio. With that, here's my conversation with Rafi Berberian on Armenia. Hey, Newsdive listeners, I am joined by Rafi Berberian, a, uh, an Armenian-American photographer who has been protesting the media silence surrounding uh, the attacks on Armenia, a conflict that's been going on for a few weeks now and has a lot of implications. So, uh, Rafi, thank you. I've really been wanting to cover this on the show, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk about it. No problem, Sam, and uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. I This came onto my radar, I think it was September 27, when the initial fighting broke out. And I should have fact-checked that, but um, when That's the initial, true. yeah, when the initial fighting between Armenia and Azerbaijan came out, and I, I admittedly was not too familiar with the conflict, and since then it's really, really um, unraveled. So we're going to get into, I think, a lot of more lengthier conversations, but just for starters, since I think maybe a lot of people might not know what's going on, can you give some background about 
how how all of this came to be, why Armenia and Azerbaijan are fighting, uh, the issues within the region, because I know there's a lot of background that's led to this. Mm-hmm. Well, the uh, the region of Nagorno-Karabakh, or what Armenians call the Artsakh, has a pretty complicated history, uh, going back to the early 20th century. Uh, before the before the Ottoman Empire collapsed, Armenia was what was our, the area of Armenia was under the control of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, so you know during those how many hundreds of years there wasn't too many conflicts within the Ottoman Empire itself based on the borders and land because everything was in the Ottoman Empire. But as the Ottoman Empire began to collapse and crumble. Uh, groups of people like Armenians and Greeks and uh, that whole, everybody that wanted their own country back, basically were starting to think about their borders and what are, what are things going to look like? Uh, so this area, Nagorno-Karabakh, I'll, I'll call it Artsakh from now on. It's less, less to say, um, is located in between modern day Armenia and modern day Azerbaijan. And this region has been occupied by Armenians for thousands of years. Uh, if you go there, which I've been uh, several times, you can visit 1,500-year-old monasteries. You see medieval uh, graveyards and things like that that really show that these Armenian people have been living here for a while. Um, but at the end of the Ottoman Empire, uh, this area was under contention. There was, uh, near the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, there was around 90% Armenian population and 10% Azeri slash other people living in this region. And between 1918 and 1920, there was an independent Republic of Armenia during those two years. Um, And during those two years, Armenia and the newly created Azerbaijan fought over this territory of Artsakh. Um, And during that time, there was also Armenians living in other places such as Baku. Uh, And during the the war, up to estimate of 10,000 to 30,000 Armenians were killed in retaliation of this new war in Artsakh. So now at this time, we also have the Bolsheviks. And in 1920, the Bolsheviks gained control of Azerbaijan while Azerbaijan was still fighting Armenia for Artsakh. So in a way, it almost turned into Armenia fighting the Soviet Union for Artsakh, which wasn't really, wasn't really true. It wasn't, they were, Armenia was still fighting Azerbaijan. Um, in 19. 19- 21, that's when Armenia was also taken over by the Bolsheviks. And now Armenia and Azerbaijan are both under the control of the Bolsheviks. And this is when Azerbaijan demands the Soviet Union, the people that are in control of both Armenia and Azerbaijan, they demand to basically get control of Artsakh. So Azerbaijan is asking Soviet Union for Artsakh. And at this point, 
the Soviet Union, Moscow, wanted to win, wanted to win the support for communism across Asia and welcoming to help welcome bordering countries of the new Soviet Union, uh, which a lot of it bordered the Middle East. So to do this, what they did was Joseph Stalin said, okay, Azerbaijan, Soviet, Soviet Azerbaijan, you can have Artsakh, you can have Nagorno-Karabakh, and you can also have Nakhichevan, which is also a, a region of Azerbaijan that's not even directly connected to it on the western side of Armenia bordering Turkey. And that, in the beginning, in the beginning of the 20th century, that's how this territory became under the control of of Azerbaijan, Soviet Azerbaijan, even though it was a majority, 90% uh, Armenian population. Uh, so that is the simplest way I could, I could tell you about how that came to be. Um, and then since everybody was, you know, in the Soviet Union now, things kind of died down for a while because things were stable. People were in the Soviet Union. Everybody was doing their Soviet things and everybody had a job. There's communism and whatever. It doesn't, that really doesn't matter too much. But then, then comes the next thing, the collapse of the Soviet Union. And throughout, throughout the beginning and the end of the Soviet Union, the government of Soviet Azerbaijan slowly and slowly pushed, I would say pushed uh, Azeris to, to migrate, to resettle back in this contested area, which at this point wasn't contested at this point. And throughout the time, by 1989, the population of Azerbaijan, uh, sorry, of uh, Artsakh was down to 77% Armenian and around 21.5% Azeri. So still a, a large majority uh, Armenian population in this area, but Soviet Azerbaijan had managed to get more, more Azeris to settle in this land. Um, and so now this begins... Uh, the conflict in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, so what happened in this conflict was in 1988, Armenians in Artsakh, who again are technically living in Soviet Azerbaijan, are started demonstrating in their capital of Stepanakert, which is still currently the capital. Uh, they wanted to unify with the Armenian Republic, Soviet Armenia. There was marches and protests, and that year, the People's Republic of Deputies in Artsakh voted 110 to 17 to request a transfer to the region of Armenia. And this was, uh, this was legally done in accordance to Soviet laws, and they did it, they did it the right way. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, Unfortunately, Moscow rejected the demands of the of the Armenians in Artsakh and kind of said, "No, nah, we don't. We you can't do that." Even though they legally, according to the law of Soviet Union, did officially do it. Um, so, because of these actions, because of Armenia trying to Armenians trying to rejoin with Armenia, 
At the same time, Armenians in, uh, in Soviet Azerbaijan, not Artsakh, uh, suffered some consequences from this. There was uh, pogroms, that, uh, uh, pogroms, which are basically organized killings of a population in Sumgayet in Azerbaijan uh, the same year where at least, at least according to official accounts, 32 people were, were uh, murdered. And because of these targeted attacks on the Armenians in Azerbaijan proper, 14,000 Armenians in Sumgay fled, fled, basically fled Azerbaijan. Uh, and this is kind of where this notion of Armenophobia comes in, where Arme uh, Azeris are being taught to hate Armenians, to be to taught that Armenians are bad guys, they're aggressors, you should be afraid of them. Uh, one of the head academics of Azerbaijan uh, and who uh, internationally acclaimed journalist Tom, uh, Tom DeWalls, who is a British journalist who covers the Caucasus, uh, called this, called this uh, uh, academic in Azerbaijan the foremost Armenophobe. And in a book he wrote, uh, this Azeri guy, he, uh, he blamed Armenians for the reason of these pogroms. It's just a, a beginning of giving information, basically false information to the population of Azerbaijan. And Rafi, I actually wanna interrupt you real quick, just yeah. because that actually uh, makes me think of something I was reading on today, which is that uh, a lot of the journalists I've been following, some of the few who have been covering this are noting that the Armenian government is letting anyone in. They're like, we'll show you what's going on here. Whereas Azerbaijan is, there's heavy censorship. Um, any foreign journalists are being restricted. Those mm -hmm. who are there are being watched while they cover. So I watched I'll, a similar video from a French journalist, I think on Twitter. I don't know yeah, if you might have so seen I'll the same one. Dig into that later in the episode, mm -hmm. probably, but I thought it was good to just note for our listeners now because mm -hmm. that's very telling of how this conflict is shaping. Yeah. And if you do, if you look at the international press, Freedom Press uh, Freedom Index, uh, Armenia is ranked number 61, and this is out of 180. Azerbaijan is ranked 168 out of 180. And uh, Turkey is ranked 154. Side note, Turkey has the largest amount of journalists jailed in the basically in the world. Well, for our listeners, we're definitely talking about Turkey because we'll they talk are about that. a huge part of this. But yeah. well, I'll uh, go back to uh, yeah, the, the background. Yeah. Um, so, um, where was I? Uh, the pogroms, because of the pogroms of Armenians in Azerbaijan were happening because of the push in Artsakh to gain freedom from Azerbaijan, Soviet Azerbaijan, and regain, uh, join back up with Soviet Armenia. Uh, in 1989, uh, there was an independent ruling. Artsakh was under a, kind of an independent kind of jurisdiction at this point, but Soviet, the Soviets decided to return it officially back to the Azerbaijani administration, even though they had this certain, they had some, some certain autonomy in that region, uh, which Armenia, uh, obviously didn't like too much. And, uh, Following that, there were new, there were other pogroms, which took place in Kirovabad, which is modern day Ganja, 
uh, and also in Baku in 1990. I actually personally know someone who actually, who lives in America right now. She lived in Baku in the in 1990, and her family was part of the pogroms that were happening. And luckily, she escaped to escaped to Armenia, and from there, escaped well, not escaped, but came to America. Uh, her name is Anya Turkat. She's a well. She's pretty well known humanitarian among Armenians, and she's written some books. She does walk does a, a circuit of of talks and things like that. Uh, that's a whole other topic. But uh, in uh, in Baku, there was at least uh, ninety Armenians that were killed. Official accounts and two hundred thousand Armenians were were displaced. One of my friend being one of them. Um, and again, the journalist of all, he stated that the Popular Front of Azerbaijan, uh, which was a political party there, was responsible for the program. And according to this journalist, they shouted, long live Baku without Armenians. So more anti-Armenian sentiments. Uh, in 1991, Azerbaijan abolished the status of Nagorno-Karabakh Autonomous Oblast. Oblast? Um, oblast or Oblast? I'm not sure how they how that's pronounced, uh, and they regained the administrative division, which brings, which brought the territory under direct control of Azerbaijan. And that was largely seen as an illegal action because technically uh, the independent region had also already declared its independence legally, even if it was not accepted by the Soviet Union. Uh, so that's kind of the main argument nowadays of to why Azerbaijan does not legally have a right to Artsakh, even though internationally it's recognized as part of part of Azerbaijan, the Armenian uh, Armenians claim, and uh, which I also believe is true, that legally Artsakh has been was already independent from Azerbaijan, and they had Azerbaijan had no legal right to incorporate it in their modern day republic free of the Soviet Union. And we argue that Artsakh has never been part of the, it was only part of the Soviet, Soviet Azerbaijan and never part of the independent Republic of Azerbaijan. Um, and during that time there's been calls for self-determination uh, and we got we come to the war in the early 90s uh basically that war went on for several years and armenia ended up according to azerbaijan illegally occupying the area of artsakh which is not true it's it's armenian land and it's always been armenian land um so that is up until the first war um uh, there had been, there was a ceasefire and that was gone uh, with the, the Minsk group, which is Russia, France, United States. I think it's those three countries. But my uh, understanding is even, even during the ceasefire, there has been a lot of fighting. Like this is, this is escalated more than usual, but during, there has yes. been fighting before, right? There has been sporadic fighting throughout the, the ceasefire since 94 and both sides have always said, oh, no, it's the other person. No, it's the other person. The 
the argument for the Armenian side is that Armenia won the war, basically. The war didn't end, but Armenia won the, what, what they wanted to win. They have the territory that they want, and they have no interest in escalating the war. They're, they were very, we were very happy with the status quo. We have the land. We're rebuilding our, uh, our, that region, Artsakh. We have building nice buildings. We have a stable government. We have people coming back to live on their homeland. We have no interest of firing shells at Azerbaijan. Why would we want to uh, escalate the conflict? We don't want war. We want peace. And we want to just live in peace. And that is, uh, that's the main argument now of when Azerbaijan accuses Armenia of even recently breaking the new ceasefire. We're saying, why? Why would we do that? We we just want peace and we want to live on our land. Um, yeah, and I would like to mention before we go on that I really, this is a conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia and Artsakh and journalistic integrity. You, you know, you want, I want to display both sides of a conflict. Like I, I'm on the Armenian side, obviously, but I feel, I do feel uncomfortable only saying my side of it, not really mentioning the other side. But the only reason that I am, and I guess we'll talk about this again later, is the, the way that Azerbaijan has, have, has Armenophobic, uh, you know, in tendencies and the freedom of the press is horrendous. Uh, and there's just a lot of propaganda out there. Uh, so it's hard for me to endorse anything from the Azerbaijan side uh, besides from that. So uh, I just wanted to mention that because I always, people sometimes ask me, hey, I want to learn more about what's going on, like non-Armenians. And I say, here's what I have. I'm sorry, but I can't really endorse the other side in any way, right now at least. Well, uh, I... I actually appreciate that because definitely it helps if I'm uh, being as objective as possible. And yeah. one, of, one of the philosophies I have on my show is that I'm pretty open about my biases and my type of coverage, but I try to communicate to my listeners. This is, this is not the full thing. It's not the objective. It is just the whatever voices I think I've, I've personally been seeing less of. Um, mm -hmm. And this sort of is a good transition into where I wanted to go next, which is that originally when I did learn about this, it was a conflict between uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan, and it's it still is, but it was a lot simpler when I first read about it. And that I don't know if it was a week went by or a few days went by, but the next time I like looked in was like, okay, what's going on? Turkey was involved. Syria was involved. Um, I think now Israel is involved in, in terms of certain Israeli weapons have been used uh, and uh, Syrian fighters are going to fight in the conflict. So another reason why obviously I think in a conflict, especially international conflict, all sides should be equally considered. But one reason I think it's especially concerning uh, for the Armenia side of things is that you have, from what I can tell, Armenia fighting a group of very powerful countries, Turkey, uh, I believe is a NATO country. And so can you talk about, because I, I've been having trouble even getting info on this, 
where this conflict escalated, Turkey's involvement, uh, Syria's involvement, and how this got so, or at least your perspective on how so many countries got involved so fast. Sure. Yeah, it's definitely, um, it's definitely pretty complicated. And I can't say that 100% of what I say is 100% true, because it's just hard to find information that is reliable. Uh, but from what I've seen, so first of all, uh, Turkey. Turkey has always supported Azerbaijan. Uh, they're one, they're, they're what they call themselves as one nation, two countries. Uh, and even in Armenia, you'll, people that people don't really call, people don't really call Azerbaijanis, Azerbaijanis, they call them Turks. We ever, like, they're Turks to, to them. And to a certain extent, me too. Um, so earlier this year, uh, earlier this year, Turkey and Azerbaijan were having joint military exercises. Um, now that, 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 you know, a red flag went up for Armenia about this and they said, why, what's going on? I think this was maybe in July. There was also a little escalation in July with this. There were for a day or two, they were shelling each other too. Um, I have a, a friend who's Armenian, and I actually want to shout him out. I think he might listen to this one of theirs because he ran that by me. And I feel bad I didn't uh, start paying more attention then. So I just want to, mm -hmm. yeah. George, if you're listening, thank you for putting that <laughs> on my radar. Mm -hmm. And so after that, uh, after that little conflict, Arme uh, Azerbaijan and Turkey had military exercises. And satellite, satellite footage shows Turkish F-16s at the uh at the ganja airport uh, so what i'm assuming is that these after these exercises a lot of this turkish military equipment never actually went back to turkey it stayed in azerbaijan and uh, so that's the part of the turk of turkey helping out on the ground and in the air and on, so in the ground on the ground we have reports of uh cuckoo clock uh, we have uh, reports of Syrian jihadists being uh, being shipped over from Turkey to Azerbaijan uh, this has been actually it's been independently uh, confirmed from French journalists uh, explained from uh, French president uh, Macron uh, and also by Syrian a Syrian watchdog group that that's in Syria that you know keeps track of where these large groups of either jihadists or the uh, what they call the Free Syrian Army, which is considered now officially a terrorist group, um, and it was also confirmed by the militants themselves on the ground uh, after being interviewed and said, "Well, uh, Turkey told us to go over there, and they were going to give us money, a lot of money, basically more than they could make in Syria." And then we said, "Okay, we're going to go." A lot of what I've seen was these these fighters. A lot of them didn't know they were going to fight on a front line. They thought they were going to go, you know, we're going to go protect this military compound. We're going to go be almost security, glorified security guards for Azerbaijan. And when they got there, they were dropped off on the front line and they started, they had to fight. They had to, they basically joined the fight. I'm not sure if, again, I'm not sure if that's the case for all of them or some of them or whoever, but uh, that's what, that's what I have read about. Uh, it's also uh, important to note that a lot of these, 
Syrian fighters in the Free Syrian Army used to be part of ISIS. When ISIS was, uh, you know, they were in Turkey, they were in Syria. When things kind of went south for ISIS uh, and things kind of dissolved, a lot of these uh, militants, they said, okay, we're we're Sikh, we're not ISIS anymore. And they kind of went and they joined the Syrian, the Free Syrian Army, uh, which has been documented that that there are a, su- a substantial amount of people that used to be in ISIS that are part of this uh, jihadist group now. I actually uh, want to ask, is there a place where I can also, and our listeners can read more on that? Uh, I've, I don't have, I, I don't have one place that I look at news. I, I see things on, uh, the EVN report, which is an Armenian, uh, Armenian news site that reports most of what's happening on the front line. Uh, I've mostly been getting a lot of my news from international news meet, uh, outlets. I I try I really try to make sure they're more reputable ones because there's a lot of ones out, a lot of them out there that are I don't know I've never heard of and I rather go with the the big ones as much as possible. Uh, whether it's BBC, Reuters, uh, I think even the Jerusalem Post has been posting some things. Uh, CNN sometimes has something, uh, but. I, I try to keep uh, Greek City Times I look at sometimes too. So I've been getting sporadic. I don't, for me personally, I don't really look specifically for things. I kind of just go on the internet. Sometimes I just go straight to Facebook and I see what what things are being posted and I kind of do my own filter and try to find find the best things that I think are true and not some radical person that's just writing what they feel like is true. And a lot of times people post articles that are a couple of years old too. And you have to make sure you're looking at recent news. Um, yeah. So that's, that's what I could say about that. Um, the, uh, so in it, so that was Turkey and Syria. Um, you can actually, there's also photos that we, that we have seen on Azeri social media accidentally showing uh, soldiers that have Turkish emblems on their, on their arms and you know things of that nature which a lot of times those posts come down right away when it's noticed but there's plenty of screenshots of people of turkish soldiers in uh in azerbaijan uh, as for the uh uh israel israel is uh providing is selling weaponry to azerbaijan they sell uh they sell weapons but more uh, more specifically they sell a lot of of drones to Azerbaijan and uh, unfortunately they haven't been uh, held accountable for that Uh, actually I saw something I guess it was yesterday where uh, the High Court of Justice of Israel rejected a petition to ban arms sales to Azerbaijan uh, due to the lack of evidence of it being used for war crimes against Armenia uh, you know, money, 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 right? They want to keep selling the weapons. They don't want to face the consequences. And it's really, uh, it's really, really disheartening as Armenians to see a, a nation of Holocaust survivors uh, supporting what we are going to call hope, hopefully not another genocide. And I also, I want to stress that as Armenians and me specifically, I don't have any hate or hate towards people. 
of like the people of Israel or the people of Azerbaijan or the people of Turkey. These, a lot of these people are just, they've been taught, taught to hate or they, they have only propaganda or what the government gives them to learn about. So we have to, we have to, you know, really think about that and not just say, Oh, I hate all Azeris. I hate all Turks. I hate, I hate the Jewish people because they support their government for selling weapons. It's not like that. So, uh, so that was Israel, Syria, and Turkey, those additional players. And it's also been reported that there also could be fighters from other Turkey countries like uh, Turkmenistan that are also coming over to help Azerbaijan because those, the, those Turkic countries have ties to each other. Um, just like it, it's reported that maybe there are some Greeks coming from Greece to help Armenia. Not a lot, I don't think, but a few of them, Greeks and Greek Armenians coming to help fight in Artsakh, which I saw something today that, that maybe three or 500 people are reported to be coming to Artsakh. So just tit for tat, you know, one and the other. Yeah, and so where it seems things are now is that I know Russia is trying to put together a peace deal, uh, and I know there's been speculation from some people covering this that if there is no peace deal, this could turn into a conflict between, uh, I believe, Russia and Turkey. So they're in talks, but from what I'm seeing, uh, Turkey has not been the most active in them. Uh, and also, in general, as, as we talked about earlier, there's been peace before, but that doesn't necessarily mean everything is fine. So I'm curious about your take of what, what you think maybe could come from those talks and what should uh, be done to address what's going on and the conflict. So first of all, Turkey and Azerbaijan don't want peace. What that means to them what peace means to them means they lost. Peace means they're not gaining their land back currently or ever, who knows, uh, for them. Um, Turkey, like right now, Turkey wants what's happening right now to keep happening because it's, unfortunately, it might be a war of attrition. Uh, Armenia, Armenia's population is only 3 million people. Uh, compared to 10 million in Azerbaijan, 82 million in Turkey. Uh, Armenia's uh, GDP, 12 million. Azerbaijan, oil-rich Azerbaijan, 47 million. Turkey, 771 million. Uh, military budget, Armenia, 600 million. Azerbaijan, 1.7 billion. And Turkey, 18 billion. So the longer this goes on, I mean, you do the math. Uh, <laughs> If, if this doesn't end relatively soon, I mean, I don't know how long, but if this doesn't end, it, if it keeps going the way it is, eventually you might, you, you might not be having a good time. The Armenians might not be having a good time with this. Um, and that, I think that's the reason why the original, the ceasefire that was uh, brokered, well, I think it was Friday night or Saturday, Friday, um, that's that's the reason I think that that never went through is because uh, I think that the Azeri population, which 
the Aziri population had protests in uh, in July and during the first uh, during that first little skirmish, uh, saying, "Come on, let's go to war, let's finish this." They were protesting the government for stopping the attacks, basically, and it's well documented on uh, that this happened. Uh, and I'm thinking something, maybe not something's that magnitude, but uh, either even from Turkish pushback on the Azerbaijan government that said, "Hey, you can't. If you agree to this ceasefire and you hold it up, you're you're showing weakness. You're saying that uh, we're, you're saying that you lose right now. You're you lost right now. And if you don't continue the attack, you're not going to get your land back. Because what at the end of when the ceasefire was supposed to start." Azerbaijan really did not have anything to show for their attacks. They hadn't really gained any substantial land. If they hadn't gained any uh, any strategic, they had no strategic gains. Anything that was to, what you would say to write home about. There was nothing really to celebrate on their side, and I think that's uh, that's why the ceasefire wasn't upheld. And unfortunately, on going to continue. It doesn't look good in general for any continuing uh, attempts for ceasefire because, as we've seen, they don't honor it. And sure, Armenia could say, "Yeah, we ceasefire," and then let's bring the hot, let's bring the ambulances in, let's bring the uh, the humanitarian effort in, let's help, let's get rid of, let's uh, you know, give the bodies of the soldiers back. We can't do that. We don't trust. We don't trust the Azerbaijan side to 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 ceasefire but let's take all these people in there and help and you know fix things up or whatever boom 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 all of a sudden you have uh, you know rockets and drones fl fl shooting on you when you think there's a ceasefire going on it's uh you can't you can't do that unfortunately and so i think this also goes to how i learned about you was my mom was in the city uh, and ran into you protesting, uh, I believe with other people uh, mm -hmm. trying to get media to cover this. And mm -hmm. I also saw in LA there were protests to try to get media to cover this. And it's it's been a little bit, getting a bit more coverage, but I think in general, international news never really is treated that seriously until it's big mm -hmm. and uh, especially with how expected this is to escalate, should be getting more coverage. So I want to I wanna talk about what you think the role of more people knowing about this could play in the situation and what can be done to get more people to be invested in what's going on. Mm -hmm. So the reasons for the protests is definitely to get more media attention, more media coverage. Uh, it's also to get people, not just the media, the the government officials, the the civilians, the just the normal people, to know about what's actually happening. And the reason we have to do this is because on the other side, Azerbaijan has a whole network of basically propaganda pushers. Uh, they they pay off. Uh, they pay a lot of money every year to lobby U.S. officials to send uh, to send stacks and stacks of, of paper that say what they want what they want the international world to see, uh, and it's something 
it's something that Armenia doesn't have. They don't have this. Uh, they don't. They don't pay millions of dollars for to send their information to these to these uh, government officials around the world. Um, uh, this this uh, kind of this kind of ties into the uh, the uh, what's it called the the press freedom kind of aspect. Uh, the reason Armenians are protesting is because we are take we are we're taking we're we're basically combating this fake news. You know this this really biased news on the side of of the side of Azerbaijan that gets distributed to all these politicians around the world and to the press around the world. Uh, unfortunately, what we, we can, we see, uh, we see these articles by these big news organizations and sure, we're happy that we're getting noticed, but what's happening is that there's this false equivocation of the sides in the conflict. What Armenia is being seen as an equal to Azerbaijan where Armenia and Azerbaijan are, are attacking each other, where instead of one is seen as an aggressor and one is not, it's, it's just not equal. Azerba Armenia is defending itself from Azerbaijan and, and both sides of the, both sides are getting a slap on the wrist, which is on the wrist, which is rewarding the side of the aggressor because they can do whatever they want. And uh, Armenia will be blamed for it too. And if arm and if, how many times has Azerbaijan attacked a civilian, a civilian set uh, Stepanagert? They've shelled civilian centers. They've shelled the church. They've shelled the cultural center, and every single time that happens, Azerbaijan denies it. They said no. Armenia attacked first, and all of this, all of this is translating into equivocation in the international media. And that's another thing that we're fighting for is to say, hey, look at us. We want peace. We don't, we don't want war. We are not the aggressors. We are just trying to live peacefully. Armenia is for peace. And that is a huge reason why we're out there protesting is to show, is to show that there is no equivocation between the two sides. It is also to protest the, the funding that the U.S. government and other other governments have given to Turkey and Azerbaijan. Uh, the Trump administration uh, over 2018 and 2019 has uh, given Azerbaijan $100 million in security aid. Uh, in Israel, 40% of Israel's oil comes from Azerbaijan uh, and has sold $800 million of military equipment over the last decades to Azerbaijan. So in addition to, to changing this narrative of this equivalence between the two sides, we're also, we're also uh, trying to get the attention of our, of our of government officials and news outlets that who knows, maybe has, have some Azerbaijan money in their pockets uh, and telling them, sanction Turkey, sanction Azerbaijan, stop aiding these countries who who don't even need the money to begin with. I mean, Azerbaijan has oil money. They have plenty of money for themselves. And for some reason, the Trump administration and previous administrations have continued to give money to Azerbaijan and Turkey. And, it, and Armenians living in the United States, 
that thought comes across in your head, you think, wow, my tax money literally went and killed an Armenian in Armenia because, you know, they used a weapon that was supplied, a Turkish F-16 supplied from the United States just killed some civilians. That thought comes across in my head too. And it's not a good, it's not a, not a good thought. I, I mean, every day, I, every day I look at a list of uh, soldiers that die praying that I don't know anybody on that list. Because I personally, I lived in Armenia for two years. Um, I was on the ground there for a couple of years. So I made some connections. I know some people. I know some people that went to the front line. So I, it's, it really hits home for me. I mean, I there's uh, an independent outlet on YouTube, The Convo Couch. Um, I don't know if you follow them, but they've been covering it a little bit. And one mm-hmm. thing they've been saying is that they have friends in the United States who are Armenian who have literally been going during this conflict to the country to fight. So I, mm-hmm. I do think, one, that speaks to what you're saying about this idea that it's uh, conflating the two sides because one side has an ally, you know, be it a passive or an active ally in the U.S., uh, in, in Israel, in uh, Turkey, heavily involved. But I wouldn't even say ally, Turkey, an aggressor. Yeah. Um, and then the other literally has people coming all the way from another country just to fight. Uh, and so, yeah, no, I, I mean, I just in general have always been really upset with news outlets not really giving a voice to suffering in communities that aren't directly American. So mm-hmm. I, I can't relate on a personal level, but I do think that speaks a lot to why I wanted to cover this. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious. A, oh, so, no, what were you going to say? Sorry. I, I, I'm just saying in this in this year, you know, in 2020 or in, within the last 10 years, we have so much more access to pictures. People can take pictures on their phone, videos, uh, social media lets us spread this information. And there's just, unfortunately, so there's just so much hard proof of things happening, of Turkish F-16s, of Turkish soldiers in Azerbaijan, uh, pictures of uh, pictures of uh, Israeli drones, uh, remnants of them on the ground that were shot down, uh, the the shelling, the shells that came from F-16s that are specifically made for those types of aircraft that are sitting on the ground on the streets of Stefanogert, the cluster bombs from that are internationally banned against civilian population, they're, uh, the, what their leftovers that if you pull the string on it, it explodes. Thousands of these shells are being picked up and collected on the streets of Stepanager. We have all of this evidence. And I keep saying, how much more does it take to prove something? It's still, it's all alleged. Still, it, it's not confirmed or whatever, whatever the news outlets want to say. But what I'm saying, how, how much proof does it take? It's not 1994 anymore. We have pictures, we have videos. Sure, you can Photoshop something, but it's not, that that's not a reason to say that this is something isn't real or not. Yeah, and uh, I mean, obviously we wouldn't be talking about this if politicians, if uh, big media were more receptive, but in, in your protesting and your raising awareness, uh, have you found that just the average person is receptive to this and, and understanding, or has that been a challenge of its own? So. Me personally, I, you know, my, my friends, my non-Armenian friends know that I'm Armenian and several of them have reached out asking about the conflict. Um, 
but it's more about the people that don't have a close Armenian friend. People say, oh, everyone knows an Armenian person. Like, I've heard that before. Every every American person ha has met an Armenian person, American Armenian before. There's a lot of us here. Uh, but it's those people that don't have the uh, a close connection to an Armenian that I, I'm not sure if they, at the beginning, they definitely had no idea what was going on. Maybe a, a week ago, maybe a little less, people started to be like, hey, what's this Armenia thing going on? And I think as of, as of today, there is, I think, a, a substantial amount of people that have at least a little idea of what's going on, uh, especially because, you know, Armenian celebrities like Kim Kardashian, she posted about it. I mean, if that's what it takes for more people to recognize what's going on, that's great. Um, so I think we are definitely getting some recognition. When we're at protests, we see uh, people driving by that are waving at us. People, I mean, people that you can noticeably look in their car and you could say that's not an Armenian person because uh, Armenians can tell if you're Armenian or not. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think we're getting some more, we're getting more coverage. We're getting, uh, we're getting some better coverage, some of it is great some of it is still kind of wavering on the edge of uh, you're still kind of equivocating the two sides that's the biggest thing in my opinion um but on social media uh there's a lot a lot a lot of trolls out there uh and it's been uh last couple of days there's been some articles about how there's so many uh bots aziri bots uh with twitter accounts facebook accounts instagram accounts that are tweeting uh, hashtags every second or something on a machine like uh, automated uh there is a big uh, part of the propaganda machine of azerbaijan uh it's been internationally recognized even uh, mark zuckerberg had a the founder of facebook had a some a post about it a couple a day ago or two days ago of of uh kind of trying to cleanse the social media of and he specifically mentioned among other among other places in the world he mentioned azerbaijan as one of the places that a lot of fake accounts were coming from um so the uh the the the, the grips of the azeri uh, propaganda machine run really really far and wide uh, actually let me uh one quick uh, i guess story so in uh and this is kind of related towards Armenophobia again. Uh, I traveled to Bulgaria in, last year, last summer. And I went to, uh, we did some sightseeing. I had a photo exhibition there about Armenia. Uh, we went to a, a city, uh, Veliko Tarnovo, a city in Bulgaria. And there was a fortress there. Uh, and our tour guide told us, it was like a 12th, century fortress maybe a little older our tour guide told us that with the help of the azerbaijan government that this tour guide didn't really doesn't didn't know about the conflict or anything they said with the help of the azerbaijan government they were able to uh they were able to restore this fortress and specifically restore some 13th and 14th century churches with frescoes with the aid and i looked later of an art with for an article about it they donated 2.5 million uh, to uh, to this project 
where they fixed the fortress walls, three medieval churches, which when I heard that, I was just dumbfounded that the Azerbaijan government would help to fix these Christian monuments, uh, where at the same time, between 1997 and 2006, uh, Azerbaijan destroyed every trace of medieval Armenian Christianity in Nakhichevan, which was that other region that was given to Azerbaijan by the Soviet Union. They destroyed 89 churches, 5,840 cross stones, uh, which was part of the largest Armenian uh, uh, largest Armenian cemetery in the world, uh, and total of 28,000 monuments were destroyed in this area. And there's video evidence to prove it and satellite evidence to prove this. Um, so you can see how they manipulate the world. They help restore a church. They help restore a site in Bulgaria, but they destroy the every trace of Armenia in this region. Uh, last year, uh, the Cultural uh, Committee of UNESCO had their annual meeting, and you guessed it, Baku. In UNESCO and Baku praising Azerbaijan for their humanitarian work, for their, uh, for their, you know, restoring places, for having nice cultural, uh, cultural monuments. And I was just dumbfounded. And you know what? UNESCO has has some nice Azerbaijan money in their pockets, and that's that's what. That is exactly what we're dealing with today. That to the you see the lengths they go through to to create their own narrative. That's my, sorry, that's my story. <laughs> no, that's fine. Um, I think I think we've touched on everything I wanted to touch on. But mm -hmm. before we go, is there any work, uh, any organizations or info you would like to share, as well as any? work of your own that you would like to plug for our listeners? Uh, yeah, so Armenia needs donations for humanitarian relief. Uh, so I've been, I've been plugging the All Armenia Fund. That's a great place to go donate a dollar, donate $10, however much you want to donate. Uh, it, it goes to humanitarian relief for the, the pe people there, 100 the, the population of Artsakh was 150,000 and more than half of it of them have been displaced. So they need, they need help. Um, I personally uh, have been posting through my, my photography page, uh, mostly on Facebook. Uh, so if, if listeners want to check it out, I try to curate what I post. Uh, I go through every all the stuff that I see and I try to post what I think is most important and which is what is most legitimate uh, on Rafi Berberian photography. I also have an Instagram page, which I haven't posted to in a while uh, just because it's been with coronavirus and this going on. I've just been pretty, pretty down on things. So I haven't been posting pictures, uh, but if you do want to check that page out, I have a project that I've been working on that, just showcases Armenia and all the beautiful sites, uh, the beautiful history of Armenia. Um, so yeah, All Armenia Fund is probably the best place. And if you want to stay up to date with uh, with news specifically on the Armenia front, uh, militarily mostly and government-wise, the, again, the EVN report posts the uh, updates from what's going on on the front line of Armenia. 
uh, which and they post the uh, exact, basically the government uh, press releases for people to see. Uh, and you know the press freedom index of Armenia sixty one, so it can't be too. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it's too uh, crazy to look at directly what the Armenian government is putting out for people to see. Uh, I do personally have people on the ground there, even some family members that are generally generally confirming what's going on uh, with what the government is putting out. I have some family that is working with some foundations and that actually work in Artsakh normally. So they have some ways to to know if what's going on is true or, you know, slightly exaggerated. Um, that's pretty much all I can say about that. Uh, it's, it's tough out there. Well, Rafi Berberian, thank you so much for coming on News Dive to mm -hmm. share what's going on, talk about how people can learn more and support. Uh, I appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. And uh, I look forward to uh, definitely rewatching this again and sharing with my friends. Of course. All right, thank you. That was a conversation with Rafi Berberian on Armenia, Azerbaijan, uh, what's going on there. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it was informative, and I hope you will share it with people because this definitely needs to be getting more attention. If you like this type of coverage, if you want to hear more international news or just news that doesn't get a lot of attention, please do follow Newsdive. We have all our episodes on anchor.fm slash Newsdive. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcasting platform by searching Newsdive. And you can follow us on social media to keep up with all of our own reporting as well as other people's reporting that we like to share and boost. On Twitter and Instagram, we are at Newsdive Radio. I am Sam Carliner. Thank you for listening.